Hello everyone and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series on women and leadership. I'm Ilana Betel. I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with people who are helping to advance our organization's goals of empowering women in the fields of peace, security, defense, and of course, leadership. In this episode, we'll be discussing the realities and challenges of women in senior positions in European organizations. And we're very pleased to have with us two exceptional women, Dr. Hannah Neumann, a member of the European Parliament for the Greens, Chair of the Delegation of Relations with the Arab Peninsula, Vice Chair of the Subcommittee on Human Rights, and a member of the Subcommittee on Security and Defense. With her, we have Johan Kebalfour, Director of Security and Defense Policy at the European External Action Service, that's the EEAS, formerly the Netherlands Ambassador to the Political and Security Commission of the European Union in Brussels, and with 25 years of exceptional experience in the Dutch Foreign Service. Welcome to you both, and thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. As ever, we start out with introductions. So maybe, Hannah, you would like to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you actually also arrived into the field of defense and security. Well, Ilana, first of all, thank you for having me. And you already gave a nice overview of my formal titles. So maybe I'm going to take care of the more informal introduction of myself. It's always funny when you look back how many lives kind of you have to squeeze into one. So I'm a mother of three teenagers by now. I'm 37 because you can't see me. That's why I'm saying it, not because I think it's important. Um, I have had a career as a male woman and a caterer. So that was kind of my first life also earning the money to do my studies. I have a master's in communication studies. That's how I started. And for some reason in in the course of this master's, I ended up doing an exchange program with the Philippines. I just didn't want to do the usual Great Britain, USA, France stuff, picked something totally crazy out of the blue and ended up in the Philippines. And that's where my love for peace, security, defense, however you name it, started because I was very fascinated by um, the south of the Philippines. So there's an island called Mindanao. They have a civil war forever, like 40 years now. Um, But there are a number of communities who somehow managed to stay off limits to all this violence. And I was so fascinated about how they do that, these so-called peace zones in the midst of violence, that I somehow got into peace and conflict studies, because that's the kind of professional research perspective you usually take if you want to understand that. So I did another master's in political science and then my PhD in peace and conflict studies, looking not just at the Philippines, but at other post-conflict, post-war settings. So I became a researcher. And then I realized that a lot of this has to do with big politics. Back then, it was the whole discussion about nation building, state building, the role of UN, NATO in this setting. It was a bit the start of the Afghanistan mission as well. So I went a bit more into politics and that international level of discussions. I have also been an advisor in the German parliament for some time. And then being a bit sick of politics, doing communication, especially for organizations that have been fighting um, racism and sexism. So this kind of, I mean, problems with hate and 
division in our societies that we also have back home. And then the question, how did I become a politician? Because I, I really haven't been a politician before, so I don't have the classical politician career. But I live in a part of Berlin where the right-wing nationalist party, the AFD, they won a direct seat in the local elections. And me as someone going to other places and helping people to build democratic structures on the local level that are inclusive so people don't radicalize, which was my profession back then, felt quite hypocritical, not taking care of the rift that I found in my own home place. So I joined the Green Party because that was just the one that was closest to my understanding of especially how politics works. And then I became a local candidate for the national elections. It was clear I'm not going to make it to any parliament. I just wanted to make sure, for example, when we go into school discussions, to have another narrative. And well, apparently I, I liked the job. And apparently some people in the Green Party thought I, I do a good job. So then I, I, I was approached um, for running for the European Parliament. And because of this background that I have in peace and conflict and security and defense, it was clear if I go there, of course, I'm going to fight for the stuff that I have been fighting for before, but just in politics and seeing how much I can push it. And that's what I am doing now for nearly two and a half years. Very, very, very interesting. I would just say I also started out in catering and that's how I paid for my PhD. So there you go. Um, Joanke, tell us a bit about your background and your career. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, I'm very thrilled to be able to participate in one of those podcast series. And I think uh, Women in International Security, the first time I was really involved in them was when I was uh, posted as deputy ambassador in Washington for the Dutch embassy, because uh, there the chapter in, in Washington is very active as well. So thank you for having me on this podcast. And thank you for having me. I'm very honored to be able to share that with uh, uh, Hannah Neumann. I'm a simple civil servant uh, dealing uh, with security and defense issues, but still I think it's very important to emphasize also the female part in international security because I've been dealing throughout my career, I think on several occasions, both with European issues and security issues, but especially when I was hosted in the NATO delegation there, uh, at that time, the beginning of the 2000s, being a woman in those international security and defense spheres was quite exceptional. And now at least I see this changing rapidly with uh, many young uh, women also involved and working here also in the European External Action Service. But still, there is still a very long way to go. And I think it's very important in this area of peace and security and defense to have more women participate, because that still is an issue, and I think an issue worth fighting for, not so much uh, having more bureaucrats like me in uh, working on those, but especially also when you look at conflicts in the world, where you have negotiations going on on peace, where you really need to involve more women, but also on missions, for example, on EU missions, both civilian, but especially also military where you need to have uh, more women. Uh, on my own career, uh, you've mentioned uh, I've been previously in Brussels also as the Netherlands ambassador to the EU Political and Security Committee. Uh, but before that, I was posted in Washington, London, Moscow and NATO, and also in the ministry in The Hague. 
working on both European issues and security issues. So I'm very much uh, liking the job that I'm having right now, being able to do this for the European Union. In the growth area, I say about uh, defense, because more and more we acknowledge that there is a role for the EU to play in the whole broader. And I don't want to emphasize only defense, because I think it's important to emphasize the security part of it, because in the end, not defense that we can use to solve the conflicts in the world, but it's very much the combination of security and defense and the combination of all the EU instruments that we have in place, which is, we call it so-called the integrated approach, but it's something we still need to do and do this in practice. I really like uh, working in Brussels. I started my whole career, not so much in catering, because I did catering during my student time. But the first time I was in Brussels was as a Blue Book trainee in 92. Uh, so a lot of it had changed because the area of peace and security in that time wasn't so much on the agenda in the EU. And I'm glad it's, uh, it's there right now. Excellent. Well, two um, great careers at two different places. But I think both of you raise a question, which I think we can all enjoy um, trying to understand better, which is what should be the role of the EU in security and defence and what should be women's role within that role? Um, maybe Hannah, if you want to have a go at it. It's a quite timely question also with the discussion on the strategic compass starting right now where for the first time, and that's the good thing about the strategic compass, it's actually member states engaging in a coherent thinking about where they want to see EU defence and foreign policy going. So we had a lot of strategy documents, but usually it's the European Union External Action Service coming forward with these documents or us in the European Parliament and then member states telling us why all of this is not working. Um, and this time it's member states coming forward with a document. And of course, we can discuss how balanced or not balanced this document is and what we would like to see more. I would, for example, like to see more of the civilian tools so that it really reflects an integrated approach. But it's for the first time member states coming up basically with their own benchmarks. So that's a big step ahead. And I think we really need to see this step ahead because in the world that we have now, Either we act as one European Union, then we have a huge impact, or we try to fall back on these bilateral actions, but then every country, even the big ones, will just realize how little of a say they have. And maybe that is one of the big learning experiences since 92, since the Blue Book traineeship, um, that in the areas where we have a common European Union policy, and in the foreign area that's, for example, trained, we are super strong. And even with just a soft power, it's a bit weird to say just a soft power, but I guess you know what I mean. We have a lot to say, and there have been two things in the last four years that we always need to remind ourselves of. The one is um, the regulation on data protection. So when we started working on the regulation of data protection, especially Facebook said, well, if you do that, we are going to leave the European market. What happened? We set the global standard. Of course, Facebook didn't leave the European market. Rather, it just said, okay, so now we need to accept that standard for the EU. Why not just do it everywhere? And now Brazil and other big countries actually just copy and paste what we have. The other issue was the trade, let's say, conflict that we had with Donald Trump. 
So he was trying to bully us and trying to push us apart, but because trade policy is a common EU policy, so there's just one EU response on trade. And the moment we stood with one EU response on trade, he backed away and we never heard of that kind of conflict again. And that clearly shows how much of power we have if we're working as one, which we are not necessarily doing yet on the foreign and security policy side. I really hope we walk a bit more into that direction, but this will be tough choices for the future, because basically when we talk about common European foreign and security policy and especially about European sovereignty, somehow this means that you need to have less national sovereignty. And at the moment, there's still this idea of, okay, we do stuff together on the European level, but that's not exactly what we need. We really need to shift power, decision-making capacity and sovereignty from the national level to the EU level to be as strong as the world forces us to be. And that is, for me, the core question. And then we can decide or discuss what this should look like. And I think while giving women a more prominent role surely has to be part of it. But um, at the moment, that is the key question. Janke, do you see sovereignty as being the core issue? Well, I, I think I couldn't agree more. Starting what was said last, I think the most important is we have to look at the worlds that we're facing right now and the, and the new threats that are out there right now, because that's changing. It's not only what we would say uh, more the military buildups that we still see, unfortunately, but very much also the so-called asymmetric threats. And there we have to find a new way of, of how to counter these threats. And there is very important, I think uh, you can't emphasize enough, is this together we are stronger. And of course, in the end, every military input is a sovereign decision of every member states. But if we can pool our forces together, if we can pool to get better capabilities, then we're stronger. And that's uh, in essence also what we already decided upon within the EU uh, when we had the global strategy and the new defense initiatives that were the alphabet soup, which I usually call permanent structured cooperation, which gets countries to work together on getting uh, better capabilities or a better operational cooperation. European Defense Fund getting uh, money to fund innovation for dual-use goods and getting companies in EU member states to work together on that. And military mobility is one of the examples also where we have funding both from the EU side, but also cooperation between member states. This is all a beginning and there we needed to give a bit of focus and to give direction. And I'm glad that the first draft went out after extensive consultation among member states in so what we call strategic dialogue. Everything is it's called strategic nowadays because we have a strategic compass uh, with EU, but I know NATO is also working on a strategic concept, of course. But the strategic dialogue we had past months was consisted of a lot of workshop with member states, non-papers on all the different issues. And this is not only, I'm saying, it's not only about military, it's, there is defense, there is also civilian missions, what we need on civilian capabilities, what we need to do more on cyber, on disinformation, on hybrid threats. So all those issues, space is meant, um, climate and defense. So there is a lot that we need to do and where we need to work together. And 
the work together element is the most important, I think, because that's indeed what we need to do more. Because up till now, we have, as EU member states, have separately maybe increased their defence spending. But we need to, if we can pool these resources more and better together, we can be stronger. And I want to emphasize the important part of the strategic compass goes into the part of partners, because we can't do this alone as an EU, and we need to work together. I already mentioned NATO. NATO is an important part, uh, can play an important part in this cooperation between EU and NATO. And I think we also have to emphasize that, because that's very important. There are different memberships, but there is a Uh, overlapping membership of 21 member states that are member of both organizations. And if we look at the world we we see nowadays, we need both organizations. Then on the important role of women, I'm very glad we got the elements of really mentioning also gender equality in the strategic compass. I do hope we can, if it goes into uh, negotiations with member states, it will still remain there because I think it's very important to emphasize not only uh, what I said before, that we have to look at the role of women in conflict situations, but also very much on the participation of women in, for example, uh, civilian missions, in military missions, but overall in the thinking of what direction we as a EU should take in the area of security and defence. Thank you, Janke. I'm now going to be rather provocative because I've been either dealing with or following European defence and security for the past 23 years. And there's a, there's a known cycle to it. The, the cycle is that something will happen and everybody will jump up and say it's about time the EU does more security and defence and takes more responsibility for itself and somebody comes up with a plan. And then the next thing you know is that everybody or certain states or players or whichever one it is you want to say will say, but what about NATO? And we can't replicate NATO. And then partners in NATO will go, we shouldn't do this or that or the other. First, you should meet your commitments to NATO and then go and think about other things. And everybody goes away and does something else and everything is fine. There's no doubt that part of it is generational. So I think we have reached a slightly different place because if 23 years ago, everybody was still thinking that, you know, peace dividend, end of Cold War, we're a peace project, we don't need this, then I think we've moved on from there and we realize that we do need other things. But nonetheless, there is still this sort of sense of, should we really be dealing with this? What is NATO for? Which is a completely different conversation to have. And also, I think we've not taken account of the fact that there's new threats out there, not just what people tend to call possibly mistakenly hybrid threats, but also we now have at least two fronts to look at. There's the Southern one, And there's the Eastern one, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, Why is it so difficult, and this I put to both of you, to accept that we have to move on? You deal with this every day within the organizations. And if you can give to our listeners the flavor of what are the difficulties of convincing people to move on from the debate, such as it has been for the past 20, 25 years, I think that would be really useful because whatever tends to come through in the media is always just the end result. You're having the debates within the organizations. What are those debates like? What are the pushbacks that you're getting each time 
that you're trying to raise this issue. Maybe this time we'll start with you, Yonke, because you are currently working on the strategic compass. Well, th thank you. And if I, I can start with this EU-NATO uh, debate, uh, just indeed anecdotal. When I worked at NATO in the beginning of the 2000s, I was always envious of my colleague who was dealing with EU-NATO issues because he could go home very early because there was, in fact, not much to do on that front from the security and defense. This has changed dramatically. Now, the people in my directorate that are dealing with EU-NATO issues are working day and night because there is a need and everyone sees the needs of this working together. But I also want to emphasize, and that's why I got with this anecdote, of course, we have been engaged as an EU in crisis management. We've been doing missions. There's been this issue, and you rightfully described the cycle but really getting more in the hardcore business is something of the past five, max 10 years. And so this takes time. And this is also a generational part, which you also rightfully mentioned, because if you look at the ministries of defense of the EU member states, those people have been dealing with NATO. And this is very easy. I sometimes envy my colleagues also still at NATO because NATO is a political military organization. The EU is something else. So in the EU, we have unique other instruments, but also unique that we can deal with the internal and external security and have to combine this. But it's also difficult because of the institutional division uh, between the commission that's dealing with part of it and the European External Action Service dealing with other parts. So that makes it difficult. But that's also describing how with the current threats in each member states, this is also uh, something they have to face. If you look at cybersecurity, and you look at different member states, they have their different agencies and ministries dealing with this, and also ministries of foreign affairs and ministries of defense. And so the most important one, and that's also the most important that I'm facing right now, is the coordination. And so the coordination between the two organizations, there's enough to do, we all agree. But... It's, those are different organizations, but also within the EU, with the different institutions. I don't, didn't even mention the member states, of course, all the member states that have to also see the need to increase and intensify the European role in security and defense, because not all member states are seeing this in the same uh, light as, as others. So we have to, this is also... I think a, an important part of this whole process of strategic compass is also getting a bit of more convergence with the member states. And I'm very glad that as an EU, we did for the first time uh, a threat analysis. It's based on intelligence input. It's a secret document, but it describes the threats we see uh, in the world. And it's not new, but putting it all together really gives a picture and a background that really points to the need to get our act together as an EU. Hannah, are you feeling the same convergence in the parliament? Are you feeling it amongst member states when you're dealing with it? What, what I would clearly say is the circles or the generations that you described, they are becoming shorter. So I would say we are running in the same circles much quicker and maybe at one point 
when we restarted, we still didn't forget where, that we just had that one. So there I really see an upward trend in terms of people realizing we cannot afford this anymore on the national level. So to have 27 times the same kind of structures that we need to build up, no matter what security aspect you're looking at. I also think that increasingly, um, well, countries realize how little power they have if they are alone. The question is, do they then go for the European, meaning EU27 solution, or do they go for subsets of the EU27, or do they go for China, Russia, Turkey, whatever? So what kind of alliance do they choose if they look for alliances? So it's said we need to look for alliances. And it's that we don't have to invent the wheel 27 times. The question is now, where does this lead us to? I think the best answer is the EU for sure, but it's not clear that everyone sees it that way. And I think if we want a discussion about European defense, and one of the key problems is that we don't have one defense culture in the EU, but we have different defense cultures in the terms of what do we see as threats? What role does the military play, for example, in our security infrastructure? How is the military integrated into the democratic process? What role do arms exports play for our foreign security policy? Is Do we have a human rights framework over it or an economic framework over it? So there are so many aspects where we have different traditions, histories, cultures in the different EU member states. And if you want to build a European defence, I think we also need to build a European debate about these issues. And the place for the European debate is the European Parliament. We have very fragmented media landscapes, national ones. I also think we should have a European somehow media discussion, but that's even a longer way. The European Parliament is there and it's actually keen to engage in the discussion. But we are running continuously against the wall of member states, governments saying, but defense and security and foreign policy is member states' business, so you don't have a say in that. And this is not how we create the European debate that has to come with working together in defense. Defense is super tricky. It's inherently intransparent. So it's always a balance between how much of a debate, a discussion do you have about it, and how much secrecy do you need for it to work. But that also creates this how do you say misstrauen is the German word, so that people are not very confident about what is happening there. And the more you give them the, well, stay out of it, we are going to take care of it feeling, the more this builds up, this kind of fear of what is actually happening there. And because it's a new field that the European Union enters, I would just say, let's have the accompanying debate about that in Parliament. And for me, it was very frustrating, and I know it was not just the EAS fault, that the strategic compass document, it's not being shared with members of the European Parliament. So it was leaked to journalists. It was, it's in this Oidox file. So it's not even super secret. Every think tank had it. So of course I had it as well, but how did I get it? Because some journalists leaked it to me. This is not how me as a member of the European Defence Committee want to be treated. And this is not how we build any trust that this will be a responsible EU defense. And that's also not, that's how we close out those people that could actually do this European debate about the European defense. 
But rather, it's again, as I said, it's map, and that's another problem. It's member states saying, so you get out of our way, it's member states' business. This is, first of all, not a European approach. So it kind of contradicts the whole idea of EU defense if you say, but it's member states' business, because exactly that's what, in my understanding, EU defense is not about. Can you I are- just stop you there? Sorry, just to put it in. You're the politician in this conversation. I know you presented yourself as the non politician politician. No, well, I know I'm a politician, apparently. You are the politicians. So it is the politicians in member states who are effectively saying, no, 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 this is, you know, a national issue. This is, you know, security and defense and foreign policy we do at the national level. How do you change in that case, the political debate to make it more possible? I'm I'm coming to the back to the point that I just wanted to make. So member states, and that's what the strategic compass does are willing to discuss about pooling and sharing and putting resources together, but not about transferring decision-making authority to the European level, which means every time there is a conflict between the national interests of member states, they go into different directions and they fall back to bilateral or alternative alliances. And that is what we need to stop. And the question is, do you need to change the treaties for that? Well, which also needs political will at the national level, or do you do it on a voluntary basis, and which is still there with the notion of constructive abstention or whatsoever? And this is the kind of discussions we have. I'm just a bit worried. How much of a disaster do we need for member states to really give this up? And here, I mean, every member state has their baby. So it's France, for example, with their arms exports that are 100% undermining EU rules. It's Germany with North Stream 2 which is 100% undermining EU interests. And so if you go member state by member state, everyone has their national peculiarities. And I really think we need to come to the point where they understand they may not be able to get 100% of their national interest in that slight part of the spectrum of foreign and security policy for a much bigger gain on the overall one. And that is the push and the discussion we need. And here, that's why I really think it's so stupid to leave the European Parliament out. These are the discussions we are having here. And here you have members of the German Social Democrats. You have members of the French Renew who are willing to have this pro-European discussion, who are much more pro-European than their counterparts on national level. Why are you not having the debates then? I mean, we are trying to have the debates, but we don't even get the papers. We don't get the papers. We don't get the people to come and we always get the answer. Don't mess with it. It's national business. And I would really like to see those governments who really want to push for a European defense to also push for a European debate happening with the members of the European Parliament, because that's where a European debate about European defense belongs. And that's the point I'm making. Every time a French official talks about European strategic autonomy, I don't like the term strategic autonomy whatsoever, but that's the term they are using. I say, fair enough, but what kind of national autonomy are you willing to give up for it? Because otherwise it's just blah, blah, blah. And that's when they become silent. And we really need to put the finger there ever and ever again. Because also, I don't want to waste EAS time. I don't want to waste my time on just running in these circles that you described about having the blah, 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 and then having some pooling and sharing. And then we have battle groups that are not used for 10 years. And now we call them rapid entry force. And we make them 10 times as big. But if they are not going to be used, you can even make them 100 times as big. Do you think the situation would be different if in member states and in the institutions there were more women making decisions? Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) 
I know that there are quite a few ministers of defense within EU member states that are female ministers of defense, and this is changing rapidly. So I think it will change, but in the end, I think the importance indeed is that we have uh, not only indeed more women to think about these issues, but also have women participate in the debate about these issues. Because I do agree it needs a European debate, but it also needs in member states. Because the question is quite now that maybe we have this debate more here in Brussels than there is the debate in the EU member states about these issues. Because that's what I think is important now, and that's what we hope we can at least have uh, the uh, strategic compass as a bit of a trigger to trigger this debate about the need for European security and defence, also trigger that for the politicians out there. Because what we need is also not to be backtracking, for example, on investments in security and defence in the member states. Because that's also an issue if you look at, for example, issues like cybersecurity. Uh, we need member states to do this. And in the end, this is also a national competence for them. But we need it to be stronger. To be stronger as an EU, we need all member states to invest as much as possible in security and defense. So, yes, maybe uh, in an ideal world, we will have more women in the European Parliament as politicians. Still, uh, there is a long way to go. Even we had uh, two uh, female uh, high representatives. I think this commission is uh, the first one that has good female representation, but uh, we can get it in more levels. That's for sure. I raise the issue because there's been so many studies now that show that women and men do think differently about things. I was just reading this week as a study I can't remember, I think it was about the Israeli Supreme Court, but maybe it was another country in which somebody spent two years analyzing judgments and panels of judges that, that only had men on them made significantly different decisions than panels that also had women on them. And everybody knows the law, they're all reading law and all the rest of it. So maybe the question should be not just about the senior person making decisions, but also the people preparing the decisions and the people behind the scenes. Hannah, what do you think about that? I would say especially the field of peace and security is one that is very crucial and we sometimes tend to forget it in the safe place in which we live. Um, how, I mean, to the core of our existence, these questions go. And if you think about places like Afghanistan, but other crisis regions I worked in as well, this becomes very early, pretty obvious. And I just truly believe that in, in such existential issues, it is especially important that you bring the diversity of the people for whom the decisions have an effect to the place where these decisions are being made. So what I say every time, you know, I don't have a problem with old white men because they are out there in the world, so they should be at the decision-making table. But I have a problem if the whole table is made up of old white men, but they make decisions for 100% of the people while they are just being 10 or 15%. And I wouldn't even say they make necessarily bad decisions. It's just that they have their experience, they have their career, they have their social environment which kind of I mean shapes how you see the world and I, I truly believe 
especially if you make such complex decisions for such complex settings, you should have also different worldviews, different experiences around the table. And there are some examples. It's, it's so stereotypical that sometimes you are afraid to tell it, but that show also how it's, it makes better security decisions. And I just remember the moment when they made the operation plans for Mission Sophia in the Mediterranean. So that was the mission that really still took on board refugees. They made this a military mission just because the military had the ships, although it's more of a civilian task, actually, but because we didn't have the tools, we made this a military mission. So there was a lot of effort put into the operation plans, trying to prepare these military people for the task ahead of them. And they had a long discussion, what kind of training would they need if they need to take on board some of, they are not human traffickers, but that was the wording that was used. But so how do you bring them on board? How, if they have weapons, how do you deal with that? What kind of training do they need? And it was a woman that said, okay, but what's with diapers and sanitary napkins? Because the people we take on board, this will be a lot of mothers with small children and they will be on the boat with us for a few days. And then it became apparent for everyone, yeah, of course, that's a valid question. And well, then there was quite a bit of a disaster on how do you build supply chains um, for, for that kind of stuff, which is absolutely non-military. But that's what I mean, like, just because of a different perspective and different life experiences, you bring a different perspective to the table and then it just gets better. And it's the same for classical security questions, like where do you put your troops? What are the kind of routes that you secure? And that's why I think we need to make sure that that diversity sits on the table. And sadly, in most cases, it doesn't. It's also the same when we look at these peace or ceasefire negotiations. So there's this classical point of view that we need to bring all the people that control areas with weapons to the table because they sometimes have the power over these areas. So you incentivize people to take up arms and control areas with violence if they want to have a say in the political bargaining. And you really frustrate the people who for 30 years try to find peaceful solutions. And while it is makes sense to bring people who have control over areas into the discussion at one point, the table needs to begin, be big enough to accommodate at least half of the table with people who are in there for constructive solutions and have been fighting for them forever. And that's the logics we, we, we desperately need to change because otherwise we are just running in circles of recurring violence. Circles of recurring violence is sort of more or less where we are now in a variety of fronts. Moving towards our culmination, probably, of this rather interesting conversation, we're talking in the middle of November and at a time in which not only have we experienced the withdrawal from Afghanistan and its disastrous effect on women in Afghanistan, we're also sitting here watching Unfortunately, the horrendous situation on the border between Poland and Belarus, potentially also between the Baltic states and Russia, with a threat potentially of Russia on Ukraine, but that's a sort of perennial in one way or another. Then there's the whole Mediterranean situation. There's the Middle East, which is in turmoil, which is why there's so many refugees. There's the Sahel, from which we're getting lots of refugees also, but it, even without, there's a huge amount of disorder. Why are we finding it so difficult to accept that there's a lot of different points of conflict and unpeace before we even go down the AI, cyber, China, 
AUKUS, you name it, we can sort of zoom down them. Why I put it to both of you in the different institutions and representatives in Europe, are people finding it so difficult to understand that we're living at a very different and potentially very dangerous time? And we can't really have just theoretical discussions about these issues anymore. We need to be more practical. I have to say I don't share your assessment. Good. Tell me how you don't share it. I share the point that there is a lot of conflict and violence and us often not having the perfect answer to it around us. I wouldn't say that the world was a much more peaceful place before. Maybe the violence was just a bit more far away and we didn't have the internet, so we didn't know so much about it. But I think there are a lot of people who are really having their head deep into these troubles and trying to find ways and means how to deal with it and solve it. And maybe that's a good thing. We just have given up the illusion that there is a one-size-fits-all approach and that we have the power to just change it if we want to, which we don't have. And I think Afghanistan is the one case that, well, now I will sound like an old white man, wait, that those who have been working there as researchers and sociologists have known 15 years ago that this approach of we are going there and building a democracy is not going to work. And now everyone knows it and there is a big disillusionment. But I think it's actually good because it helps us to reconsider our own fantasies of huge impact that we could have on the world if only we wanted to, which I think we never had. But there are people who are really putting their heads deep into that and the discussion that we're having now about the diversity of people that should make these solutions. It's also about contextualizing answers. So one of the problems in Afghanistan clearly was that the U.S. said they will take care of building up the military. So they built up a military along the U.S. model of the military, but that never fit Afghanistan. So what we have learned from that is we rather need to go to a place and see what is there in terms of a structure, what is the problematic aspects of this structure, so why do we have the violence, but what is maybe also something that's working and how can we shift what we have there with the resources that we realistically have into something more workable, more human rights conform, more providing security, rather than just exporting what we have. And that is a huge shift, and that shift requires us to accept well, local partners on eye level, that women have a different perspective on security than men have, especially in this context. And if we manage to accommodate that shift, then I think we will really walk a big step ahead. And on a rhetorical level, everyone's nodding, but our structures still fail to accommodate that. That's how I would put it. And that's the big challenge. Everyone was in language-wise, EAS, the European Parliament, everyone. We now need to strengthen the role of women in decision-making, especially when it comes to Afghanistan and their visibility now that Taliban put them in the corner. Well, I mean, look at all the Western delegations that have met with the Taliban in the last three months. They were all male. And that's the thing. So in theory, I think we, we have moved a bit, but now we need to change, especially our own structures, make the change happen and bringing women in all the positions, but especially in the visible leadership ones. Just just one story, because it shows a bit the problem that we have. And I, I'm sorry, I mean, I'm a member of the European Parliament, so sometimes I'm talking about the EAS, not because I'm saying the EAS is worse than other organizations. It's just the one where I have to deal with the most. I'm head of the delegation with the Iraq and Peninsula. We have by now, I think, three embassies in the GCC countries. They are all headed by men. And these countries are actually very interested in working on women's empowerment and not just rhetorically. Why don't we send a woman there? And then I get back 
Well, yes, you know, in these countries, they are very male dominated. So they may just not accept the women as their counterpart or seeing as, as that much power. And I have to say that says a lot about the stereotypes inherent in that person rather than the world out there. And we should not be the ones finger pointing on this issue. I think that's as much about middle-aged white men as it is about old white men. Janke, um, how do you feel about our current defense and security situation and what Hannah also said? Well, I think one aspect that I want to emphasize and completely agree with your assessment on the need indeed to really put a, a as much as awareness on this gender and diversity, because indeed I'm I'm not criticizing any middle-aged or old, white or whatever men, but it's what we need uh, is the awareness of the diversity and gender possibilities that there are and different thinking, because it's not only women, it's the whole diversity question, I think you have to, to emphasize in this uh, part. Just looking at the world, I think you put the right weak spots that we're experiencing right now. What I think is important, and I'm glad that's all also in the strategic compass is to keep on emphasizing why we're doing this. So really emphasizing the EU values and the importance of human rights, the importance of rule of law, and that military or defense options are maybe an ultimate recourse in some conflicts, but the essence should be put on the integrated approach to work with local partners, to work towards nation building together with the countries themselves and indeed, more female participation can help in that uh, sense. And we're looking to that. And I think it's important that also from the EAS, we keep on looking at having as much women in leadership positions. And especially in those countries that you're mentioning, uh, Hannah, I think it's even more important to have women uh, because uh, women in those countries can actually uh, get access to the whole society. On your assessment, I think it's important to not only look at actual situation, humanitarian crisis that's happening, but I keep on emphasizing also to look at what we're doing to counter the whole uh, bunch of cyber hybrid, uh, new technologies, etc. Because uh, the geopolitical tensions that you see in the areas that you're describing in Afghanistan, in Sahel, in the issues that are outplaying there on the border between Belarus and Poland, the countries that are active there are also active in the field of cyberspace. And they're actually much more clever than we as an EU are, and they're playing it out. Uh, and this is a danger because of the autocratic way they see the world. And so we have to play smart as an EU also on those chessboard. And uh, this is something we have to learn because both Russia and China are much more capable to do this in the UN. We always thought about issues being very too technical, but we have to be more tax heavy. And I have quite a few women that are very active in, in this field and are very good. Ladies, that's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. You know, part of me feels we've only just started, but that was really, really good. Thank you both very, very much. That's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices on Women and Leadership. Thank you so much to our guests, Dr. Hannah Neumann and Johan K. Balfurt. We'd like also to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Please continue the discussion with us at Wise Brussels on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. And if you haven't done it yet, 
Subscribe to the Wise Brussels Voices and listen to all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast application. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for more great conversations.